Wow, that did my soul good. I'm sitting here soaking it in. He's up there saying, come on. I wanted to say, I'm not ready yet. I'm not quite ready. That was great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Friday, um, they had called and uh, my wife and I went down to the church at Southwest Baptist in Oklahoma City. That's where I last pastored and I've been out of the pastorate there for 11 years, still have the title of Pastor Emeritus. So if you wonder what that means, nothing <laughs> except honorary and I count it an honor, I do, to, that they want me to have that title. But uh, the church is getting ready to celebrate its 70th anniversary coming up at the beginning of November. And so since I'm uh, not going to be there, uh, be out preaching, why they wanted us to say, you know, do an interview and put it on video and such as that. And uh, one of the questions that I was asked had to do with this. Um, it had to do with the fact that a, a generation, the, ge the present generation's need to be reminded or, or not fail to forget what that generation has meant to the life of a church like this or uh, our church back home. And uh, there are people now, I'm, I'm 76 years old now, but I go back to some of the people that have been members of that church. Juanita Weston's been there how long? Almost all of those 70 years. Isn't that right? I'm going to say I'm going to say she's been here 65 of those 70 years, and uh, and so you go there now, and when she's able to come, she's there, and uh, there might be young couples and children and everything running by, and I want to stop, and sometimes I have stopped and said, do you know who you're passing by here? Do you know what she and her husband, who's already gone to heaven, do you realize what they meant to the life of Southwest Baptist Church? Do you realize you wouldn't have a church like this to come to if it weren't people like that, that paid a price and were faithful and stayed true to God and still loved the Lord? Uh, I tell you, we, we owe those that have gone on before us. And Oh, man, I sure do thank you all for that. Thank you very much. I, I enjoyed that so much. What a blessing. Okay, I told you I wasn't ready. 1 John chapter 4, if you would please, the book of 1 John chapter number 4. <clears throat> 1 John chapter 4. Those are really good quotes the pastor has given this morning, Sunday school and here too. Uh, I'm going to cut out those uh, quotes from Billy Sunday. I assume all of those are from Billy Sunday. Oh my, what a marquee that was making a hundred years ago right now. A hundred years ago right now, he was in the midst of the fight preaching and stomping and snorting all over this country. And, uh, and thousands upon thousands of people came to Jesus as a result of that a century ago. All right, 1 John chapter 4. Now, uh, we're going to begin reading in verse number 13. But I want you to notice the last words of verse number 12, where it says, And his love is perfected in us. And his love is perfected in us. Now, the reason I'm not going to go back and read uh, again, partly because of time, but let me just tell you what happens here. If you read verse 7 through 12, and then read, read verse 13 through the rest of the chapter, you would be, uh, it would be redundant. It, it, it would be saying the same thing over, just a little different way. And so we're just going to begin reading in verse 13, and read down to the third verse of chapter number 5. 
So let's follow along carefully and understand that what he is addressing here in the verses we're going to read, he has already addressed in verses number 7 through 12 about the love of God and how the love of God was manifest and, uh, and what has happened uh, to a believer, those who know Jesus Christ. And the last words are, and his love is perfected in us. Hereby, verse 13, know we that we dwell in him and he in us because he hath given us of his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him, because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother. Uh, the King James is hard to understand, so you want to see if you can figure this out. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. Everybody get that, or do we need any explanation? Yeah. Pretty clear, isn't it? Pretty straightforward. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. Now I want you to go back, if you would, to verse number 17. In verse 17, I have the last part of that verse, or the middle part of that verse, I should say, highlighted in my Bible. And it starts with the word that. That we may have boldness in the day of judgment. I want you to think about that, dwell on it for just a moment, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Our Heavenly Father, again, we call upon you and ask you to bless our time in your precious word this morning. We are thankful, O oh God, for the working of your Holy Spirit, who bears witness that we are born of you, O oh God, according to our passage. And we understand also that it is by your Holy Spirit that we have understanding. And so I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work and that we would grasp what is before us and that we would benefit, that we would be made better by it. I pray that your people would have ears to hear. I pray that you'd give me clarity of thought to speak. 
And I pray that your name might be glorified through it all. In Jesus' name, amen. Most in here have heard the name Daniel Webster, an American statesman that died in the year of 1852. Uh, Had a notable career. He served in both houses of Congress. He served as Secretary of State uh, on two different occasions under three different presidents and was known as an American statesman. Towards the end of his life, uh, Daniel Webster was interviewed uh, to kind of get an idea, I don't know, of a biography or something. And uh, so they were asking him the question about what does he attribute to the kind of effective life that he has lived? What do you attribute that to? In other words, he was held in high regard, probably not by political opponents, but still held in high regard, and goes down as a true American statesman. And what do you attribute to your kind of life that you have lived? What do you attribute that to? And he said, my life has been shaped by two great thoughts. Number one, I will meet God. Number two, I will meet my record. That's what he said. I will meet God, and I will meet my record. Now, that's probably not an amazing revelation to many of you in this room today. Not that Daniel Webster said it, but the fact that what it was said of Daniel Webster is, can be said of us as well. I am going to meet God, and I am going to meet my record. In other words, I am going to give an account of my life to God. And you are going to give an account of your life to God. And I will say to the person, maybe not in this room, but to the people that are out there that would vehemently deny that there will be any judgment or that there will be any accounting or that there will be any appearing before God, I would say to them, it's still going to happen. The fact you don't believe it is not going to change the fact that we are going to meet God. So he said, I'm going to meet God, and I'm going to meet my record. I wonder if you ever think about that much. I'm not saying you don't. I'm just saying if you read the Bible, you pay attention to the Word of God, if you sit under the sound of the Word of God on a regular basis as the Bible is preached, then we are confronted with this reality that this isn't going to just be uh, on and on forever. My life is not going to be with any, without any consequence whatsoever because after all is said and done, I am going to meet God, and no, I've never said it just like Daniel Webster did, but I am going to meet my record. I will meet God, and I will give an account of my life unto God. Right. Now think about that. You see, as John writes here, he is really not writing to develop the argument that there will be a time of judgment. That's not what he's doing. He just mentions in passing, as he is talking about God's love being made perfect in us, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. And that's all he says about judgment. That's all he says about the day of accounting. Okay, so it's not like he's trying to build the case. In other words, if I was going to build a case to uh, present or to preach or to write about the coming accounting to to God and the judgment of God, I might make a passing reference to this, 
that it is going to happen, but you wouldn't build your case here because he's not building the case. That is not what the book of 1 John is primarily about. And so uh, he just brings it out that it must be understood or accepted that there will be a time of accounting. And sure enough, as you read the Bible, you see that unlike what some people think, there is not going to be a general judgment someday when everybody stands before God and God decides who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. There's no such thing as that's called a general judgment. That's not in the Word of God. That's not it. But it does say in the Word of God that there are two specific judgments that await us in the future. Two. One has to do with those who live and die and never trust Jesus in salvation and who are never forgiven of their sin because they never humbled themselves to repent in their heart of their sin toward God and embrace by faith the fact that Jesus came and took, off our sin, uh, took our sins upon himself and paid the price for our sin. He not only suffered and died for our sin, but he conquered sin and the penalty of sin and the power of sin when he rose from the dead. And that is in the gospel. The death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ, that is the good news. Jesus paid it all. It is all settled and done. Jesus died for our sins. Now, if a person believes in him and trusts him in salvation, believing the gospel of Jesus Christ, then their sins are forgiven. If they do not, then they leave this life and meet God in judgment. That's what's called commonly the great white throne judgment. John wrote about it in the, gospel, or in the book of the Revelation in chapter 20. He said, I saw a great white throne. And he that sat upon it, from whose face the heavens and the earth fled away, and there was found no place for them. And he said, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. Uh, some might listen to that and say, you saw the dead, small and great? Yeah, and not those that didn't have existence, but those that were dead spiritually. Those that did not have the life of God. Those who had never been saved from their sin. He said, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And they were judged every man according to their works. This isn't to determine who goes to heaven or hell. That's already been determined. And then their judgment in hell will have to do with their works and how they lived in this life. And so he said the books were open, another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things that are written in the books. And he said, and death and hell... He said, the sea, rather, he said, gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to the works. So we're talking about all people of all time. Right. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And the scripture goes on to say that death and hell were cast into the lake of fire and whosoever was not found, this is the second death, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. It's called the second death. The first death would be what? When we pass away in this life and the body goes back to the ground from whence it came. The second death would be what? That final judgment of being separated in hell under the judgment of God. Somebody said, that's not very popular in the 21st century. It wasn't popular in the 1st century. It wasn't popular in the 10th century. 
This has never been a popular subject. We're not interested in being popular. We're interested in making sure we're clear with the Word of God. And the clear fact is that if a person lives, I don't care if your name is on a Baptist church roll if you're not saved. I don't care if you've been dunked in the water till it's coming out your ears if you've never been saved. Before you leave this life, you must know the forgiveness of sin by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And if not, then you will be there at the great white throne judgment. And you will be dealt with by God and be sent to hell without the forgiveness of sin. I don't even like saying that. It's not like uh, uh, talked about the preacher of old, uh, some wild, fiery preacher, and they said uh, he's brave and courageous to preach about hell, but he acts like he's glad people are going there. Well, I don't like to preach about hell. I don't even want to talk about hell. I don't want to look a man in the eye and say, you're going to hell as you are. But I'm no friend to his soul, nor am I friend to the Savior, if I'm not making that clear to people that there is this judgment that is coming, and it is a reality. See, there's another judgment. Who would that be for? Well, who else is there? Those that are unsaved and those that are saved. That's how God divides humanity. The righteous in the righteousness of Christ and the unrighteous. The just and the unjust. The saved and the unsaved. That's how God divides humanity. That's it. And the second judgment is talked about by the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 14, and it's about verse number 12. He said, For why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. As it is written, as I live, saith the Lord... Every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. Now, how's that for clarity and plainness? And he says that we're all going, as believers, we are all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. No question about it. And then the Apostle Paul mentions it again. And he mentions it in the book of 2 Corinthians in chapter 5 and verse number 10 where he's talking about serving the Lord, but we don't serve to be seen of men. Watch this now. And he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive, uh, that, that everyone may give an account of the things that he hath done in this body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. So the judgment seat of Christ, Paul said, we shall all appear there. If there's a believer that says, I don't really think there's going to be a real, uh, I don't think there's going to be a real, like a literal time when we stand before Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ, you'll believe it when you <clears throat> appear there. Because you will. And I will. Appear. Uh, we must all appear. If he didn't mean what he said, why didn't he say what he meant? And if these are the inspired words of God, which they are, then we have to understand that there is a judgment seat of Christ at which time we will give an account of our lives as believers. So whatever excuses that we make for not giving the Lord Jesus authority and control of our life and not serving Him with all of our heart, whatever excuses we give that may sound good to people here and justify ourselves you might want to think about how they're going to sound then at the judgment seat of Christ. Because we will be there. 
and will be dealt with there at the judgment seat of Christ. By the way, I have to throw this in there uh, because when we stand at the judgment seat of Christ, it's not going to be before the meek and lowly lamb of Nazareth. It's not going to be the Jesus of the Gospels that we read about. Patient, kind, gentle, giving, forgiving, and on and on. What I mean by that is by then, he is going to be crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And if you go to the book of the Revelation and you read about the judgment seat of Christ and the one that before whom we will stand, it gives this description of Jesus. John saw this on the Isle of Patmos. It gives this description that his hair is white like wool. He's the ancient of days. His eyes are like a flame of fire. He sees everything. Nothing is missed. Out of his mouth goeth a sharp two-edged sword. Uh, read the Bible. The sharp two-edged sword is the Word of God. We won't be judged by men's opinions and opinion polls. We'll be judged by the righteous one, Jesus Christ, who sees everything. And that wisdom, that white hair, like, well, he knows everything. He has all and perfect understanding. And he's got on the garment of the judiciary. He's got on the garment of royalty. He's got on the garment of the, of the priesthood. He has everything. And he has the garment that goes all the way down to his feet. And his feet are made of brass. Brass like it's burned in fire and made pure. Uh, brass always has to do with judgment. So this glorified Jesus is going to judge and there will be no miscarriage of justice. There will be no mistakes made. There will be nothing missed. I'm going to stand. Me, Sam Davison, saved six years of age, farm kid, Perry, Oklahoma, on a country road out west of that little town of 5,000 people. One of, what, 7 billion people on planet Earth right now. Plus the multiplied millions that have trusted Jesus uh, and, and will stand at the judgment seat of Christ. I, among them, will give an account to Jesus. Somebody said, how could millions of people stand there one by one? I don't think the logistics of it is what you need to be concerned about or I need to be concerned about. I think he's probably got the wisdom to have that all worked out. The key is, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. You and me. Now, here's the other thing he assumes. He assumes, not only that we understand, there is the great white throne judgment and there is the judgment seat of Christ, but John assumes that we understand that judgment and fear, they kind of go together. Judgment and fear. Well, they do, don't they? I, I remember a friend of mine, uh, he's gone to heaven too, but he started a boys' home ministry about 40 years ago in eastern Oklahoma. And uh, through that time, did a wonderful work. But the state of Oklahoma came against them and said, you can no longer, this is back in the 90s, uh, late 80s and 90s, said you can no longer um, uh, operate this boys' home uh, without a license from the state of Oklahoma. And he said, no, I'm not going to take a license from the state of Oklahoma, who, which, by the way, had the second worst record for child care and child welfare uh, from the State Department of any state in the nation. The second worst record. I hate to announce that, but they are not, not much better right now, but had the second best. So they come to this man against whom they had no charge. They had no accusations. They had no case against him, except he was operating without a license 
And the boy's home was under the church that he pastored. And he said, I, I'm not going to get it. They went through a several years battle uh, in the court. And when this thing finally got to court, and uh, the time of uh, finality was coming, uh, then my friend Jerry McDonald, he told me after they, they had won the case, he told me, Brother Sam, through it all, I knew, uh, we saw the hand of God. Through it all, I knew we were right. Through it all, I believed with all my heart we would win. But he said, I'll never forget that day that I picked up the Tulsa World. That's a very liberal newspaper in Tulsa. When I picked up the Tulsa World and I read on the case that has to do with legal Case, uh, the page that has to do with legal cases. When I read there, the state of Oklahoma versus Jerry McDonald and Calvary Boys Ranch. When I saw the power of one of these 50 states coming against little old me, he said, I had a wave of fear came over me that I'd never known before. Thinking I'm going to court and the one that is charging me is the sovereign power of one of these 50 states of the United States of America against little old me. And I got fearful. Jesus, hair white like wool, eyes as fire, sharp sword, the word of God, the judicial priestly and uh, royal garment the feet of brass in me. Put yourself there. Oh, don't worry about things like that. You haven't thought about it. <laughs> Those things don't bother me. I'm not sure it's going to happen. Oh, it is. Think about that. Now, at this point, somebody might say, you know, that's the thing I don't like about Baptist preachers. They're always playing the fear card. Trying to make people afraid. Well, there is that which is to be feared. But that's not what the text is about. As a matter of fact, our text is about, I called attention to it, those yellow highlighted words in my Bible, here they are. That you may have boldness in the day of judgment. John is not writing, please listen, John is not writing to instill fear in the readers then or now. God didn't inspire and preserve these words to make everyone afraid. As a matter of fact, it would be the will and the purpose and the plan of God that we stand at that point and at that time, are you listening now, that we stand having boldness in the day of judgment, not fear in the day of judgment. Now, I looked up this word boldness. I remember what I used to think boldness was. If somebody was brash in the pulpit, if somebody was hard and harsh, I used to think in my younger year, that is a bold preacher right there. Come to find out, some of them were nonsense. Because brashness doesn't have anything to do with biblical boldness. But here's the word boldness. Let me give you a definition, and I challenge you to go do your own study on it. And the word boldness means to have courage. It means to have the absence of fear. It means, now watch this, it means to have even a cheerful courage. Now, if you're not saved, you have something to fear. And you need to get saved. And if you are saved, 
I am not here today to try to say, if you don't understand the fear of God about the judgment seat of Christ, you need to get right with God. Okay, that's worth talking about. And we've mentioned it here, but I'm just talking about what our text says. The whole idea of studying this and preaching this and reading this, the whole idea of John sitting down and writing this by inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, is that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. See, so instead of looking at the judgment seat of Christ and saying, oh, me before him, oh, no. No, he's going to tell us exactly how we might approach it like this. The judgment seat of Christ, that'll be wonderful. That can be wonderful. You know, if you read all of Paul's writing on the judgment seat of Christ, 1 Corinthians 10 and 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you'll see that the judgment seat of Christ has to do with the reward like one has finished a race and he's getting the reward. You don't see people finish the race well and say, oh, I dread getting the reward. You don't see that, now do you? No. If, in fact, if they've run the race well, then the reward is a blessing. It causes cheer and gladness and joy. So the whole idea that John is striving for here is to understand what it takes so that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, so that we might look at the judgment seat of Christ as believers, not like this, but like this. Wonderful. Now somebody said, sure, that makes good preaching, but how in the world can that be? Well, it's right here in our text. If you look down in verse number 17, he said, herein, now this is the second time he has mentioned love being made perfect. Remember the end of verse 12? And his love is perfected in us. In us. Now look at verse 17. Herein is our love made perfect. Now let me have you look up here again. Whatever he means by love made perfect, it is directly related to boldness in the day of judgment. You can't miss that. Herein is our love made perfect. We're going to talk about what that means. But it, whatever it means, it is directly related to this matter of boldness rather than fear in the day of judgment. So the question then is, how then is our love made perfect? Do you know of anybody perfect? No. We don't have to spend a whole lot of time trying to convince anybody that nobody's perfect. Everybody pretty well, if you know anybody, you pretty well know. Ain't nobody perfect. That's bad grammar, but you get it. Nobody's perfect. So when he's talking about uh, love being made perfect, it doesn't mean that after being saved, I've been saved 70 years now. In January, it'll be 70 years. And so I've been saved, let's say, 70 years. I've never reached perfection. What kind of a knucklehead would I be to claim it when she's sitting right here? I, I, I haven't attained perfection. I haven't reached love for God like I can reach love for God, like I should continue to reach love for God. We might talk more about that later on. But I'm just saying, no, nobody has reached a perfect level where, okay, there's no more. You can't love him anymore. You can't grow anymore. You can't get any closer to God. That's not what he's talking about. What does the word perfect mean? See, the way we think about it, sometimes perfect, perfection has to do no flaws, no blemish, absolute perfection, okay? That can be included in some use of the word. The word he's talking about here has to do, watch now, with completeness. And it would have more to do, if you have ever done a jigsaw puzzle, it would have more to do with, it's finished now, every piece is in its place. 
So to have boldness in the day of judgment is a three-piece puzzle. Not really a puzzle, but I'm just using the analogy there. It is a three-piece puzzle that all three places are to be in place. And when they are in place, then love is made complete. And you can have boldness in the day of judgment. Now, what are those pieces? Well, they're right here in our text. Look down with me here. Where he says there, verse 18, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear. Fear hath torment. He that feareth not is, made perfect, is not made perfect in love. Now, here's where we get, oh boy, I'm going to throw this one at you. God's love triangle. God's love triangle. If I say, stand up here and say love triangle, do you think something good? I mean, just say love triangle. Do you think something good or something not good? Well, something not good. Love triangles. A man, his wife, and another man. Not good. Um, a man and his wife and another woman. A triangle. Not good. Wicked. Somebody help me, please. I need an amen or I may have to camp here and preach on this a while. Uh, <laughs> not good. Not good. You think about human beings... Love triangles, it's not anything good. But if God has a love triangle, oh yes, it's good. And here it is. Look with me in verse number 19. Here's the first piece. The first piece is what's first in verse 19. Because he first loved us. Somebody said, no, that's second. No, he said it's first, even if it's listed second. Is everybody with me here? He first loved us. So what we're going to do is we're going to draw an imaginary, I don't have use screens and all that kind of stuff. You've got an imagination. So what we're going to do is draw this love triangle here. And the first piece is God loves us. That's what the verse says. Let me read it again make sure. Yes, it does. Because he first loved us. Now, read back from verse number 12 all the way through. I'm talking about verse 7 all the way through. And we wonder, how did God send his love to us? How do we know that God loves us? And you know what the text answers more than once? We know that God loves us because he sent his son. We know that God's love is made manifest in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. So I'm talking mostly to people today who understood that. That we understand the love of God because Jesus came to die for our sins. I mean, anybody here doesn't know John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him. How do we know that God so loved the world? He gave his only begotten son. And the first piece is to, listen to this, understand that God loves us and he manifests that love by Jesus coming to die for our sins so that we might have eternal life. Herein is the love of God. So for the love triangle to be complete in your heart, you have to settle this question. Have I received the love of God? It can't, nothing else can be in place till this is first in place. Receive the love of God. Um, it's quite telling, like witnessing to people, whether it's door to door, or like I do a lot um, on airplanes and airports, stuff like that, in visiting, talking to people. Are you a believer? You know Jesus? Oh, yeah. Yes. Oh, yes, sir. 
And then you start pressing for, when did you get saved? Tell me about that. What was it like when you got, well, I've, I've always believed. I've always, I've always been saved. I've even had them say, I've always been saved. Uh, no. <laughs> no, you haven't. Um, you know, the children, grandchildren we enjoy so much, you know. We know their birthdays, don't we? Well, at least somebody in the house knows their birthdays, don't they? They, they got born at a certain time. You get born again, it was an event. No, nobody ever asked Paul, when did, when did Jesus become your Savior? When did you get saved, Paul? Oh, it was kind of a gradual thing. No, it wasn't. It wasn't for him, and it wasn't for anybody that got saved. No, it's not just a gradual thing. So you've got to answer the question for yourself. Nobody can answer it for you. Have you received the love of God? You come in this church, and I've been saved as long as you have, Brother Sam, and you're asking me, do I know I'm saved? Yeah. You can ask me. It never, I've never gotten mad at anybody for asking me if I'm saved. Yeah, I never have. Never have. I forget exactly where I was, but I was, uh, it, 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 I, I can't remember what the deal was, but I said something to this gentleman, and he turned around and said, say, do you know Jesus? And I said, yes, I do. And he said, so you've been saved? I said, yes, I have. Uh, uh, what do you think I should have said? I've been a preacher for 54 years. What are you talking about? Am I saved? Asking me if I'm saved. What if I'd have got upset about him? Kind of makes you wonder about a person that gets upset when somebody asks him if they're saved. We ought to be happy to talk about it. Yeah. So I'm just asking, you know, you're, you, you know that you've received the love of God? This word has got to start. There's no, there is no boldness in the day of judgment without receiving the love of Christ without receiving the love of God manifesting the person of his son, Jesus Christ. You got to start there. And it doesn't matter who thinks you're saved, if you know you're not. It doesn't matter how long your name has been on a church roll. It doesn't matter how many checks you've written uh, for the Lord's work. It doesn't matter how many times you overcame some temptation to do evil. It doesn't matter how many times you helped somebody along the way. Do you know you're saved? No boldness in the day of judgment without it. I wouldn't do that to try to make a saved person doubt their salvation. But our salvation ought to be so real to us that we're not offended when anybody asks us about the faith that is in us. That's number one. Look at number two, verse 19. We love him. Come on, we're doing the triangle. So the love of God came down to this earth through Jesus Christ. Somebody say amen so we can keep going. That's how the love of God is made manifest through Jesus Christ. Now, everything that comes down from God is to return to the glory of God. Did you ever think of it that way? Check it out in the Bible. Everything that comes down from God, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights. And everything that comes down from God is supposed to redound to the glory of God. Okay, so here's the second piece of the puzzle. We have first been loved by him. We could not love him if he didn't first love us. But we've received the love of God. Watch this now. Now we love him. We are enabled to love him. Wonderful truth here. You know how we're enabled to love him? I'll tell you how we're able. Listen to Romans and chapter 5. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. 
And not only so, but we glory in tribulation also, knowing that the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given to us. See, the only way we can love God is if God enables us to love Him. And God enables us to love Him because, what did Paul say? He shed abroad in our hearts the love of God by the Holy Ghost which is given to us. So the day, you may not realize this, the day you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, God moved into you by the Holy Ghost, and that Holy Ghost in you shed abroad the love of God in your heart. Some places around the country yesterday, they played football. And uh, I don't have time or care about those things, except I know Oklahoma did beat Texas. But anyway, uh, after some of these ball games toward the end, here's, here's what happens. Here's what happens. Oftentimes, these guys will get together, and they act like they're the first ones to ever do it. And they'll get these big old containers, you know, Gatorade containers have it full of ice, ice water, or Gatorade, or whatever it is, and they get it and they come and they sneak up behind their coach. This is the dumbest stuff I've ever seen, and uh, among the dumbest. So they get it, they get it, and they pour it on their coach. And when they show that slow motion, it's like how much water could be in that thing. It's like a gusher, you know what I mean? And the reason I mention that is, you know, what the, that's what the word shed means. It has to do with a big rush of, it has to do with like a gush, a gusher of it. This is why it's hard to understand why people aren't excited about God, aren't excited about the things of God, aren't in love with the things of God. Because when you got saved, if you got saved, it happened to you like it did the Apostle Paul or anybody else. He shed that same Holy Ghost uh, abroad in your heart that enables you to love God. And I'm not saying people that don't have it like I think they ought to aren't saved. I'm not saying that. But I'm just saying if your life isn't characterized by the joy of God, by the peace of God, by a love for God, devotion to God, then something is bad wrong somewhere because He enabled you to love Him. And still, after they asked Jesus, the first commandment still remains, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. Are you listening to this, friend? If you are not in love with God, why not? He's enabled you to. Well, I've had some things happen to me. You alone? You alone? Well, I've been betrayed. Look, you don't serve as a preacher for 50 plus years and not know betrayal. What's that got to do with me loving God? God never betrayed me. Jesus never failed me. If I, if I took my deal off and showed you, I could show you some stabs in the back. Oh, not literal scars. You know what I'm talking about. Sure. But what's that got to do with God and me? He shed abroad His love in my heart by the Holy Ghost. Well, I've had a rough life and I've had people disappoint me and I had a ma failed marriage or I had a, a pastor that I trusted and loved and he was dishonest and immoral and this and that. Right. All the kind of human failures that are out there. You live long enough and you're going to see them and you'll be touched by some of them. The question still is, what does that have to do with you loving God? 
The question is not, has anybody ever failed you? The question is, has God failed you? And the answer to that is no. Even if you're convinced he did, the answer is still no. You've got a great big book here to argue against. You'll lose that argument. Do you love God? You know why? You, if, if you're not in love with God, if you're not growing in your love for God, do you know why? You don't want to. It's on you. We stand at that judgment seat of Christ. It's not going to be about Jesus, me, and other people that have done this or that or failed me. Uh-uh. I said, nope. It's me and Jesus. And it's you and Jesus. Do you love him? It matters to him. He should have brought his love in your heart by the Holy Ghost, which is given to us and enables us to love him. Now, I look back. I mentioned getting saved so young, you know. And I look back, and my love for God has been up and down, up and down, up and down, way too much. Well, what is the world is wrong with you? Well, there are times I really love God. There are times I love the opinions of my friends. It's called peer pressure. Whoever invented that is so that we would, we'd have somebody to blame. It's not my fault. It's peer pressure. That went over great. But anyway, no. It, 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 sometimes I met her when I was 17, a senior in high school. She was a junior in high school. I met her. And I was trying to do right. Been to camp that year. and It was a great year. And I was, yeah, loved the Lord. And wanted to serve the Lord. And wanted to be a witness at school. Got to lead a buddy or two to the Lord and that kind of thing. I met her and I just went, <laughs> and no fault of her. But I was way more into my relationship with her than I was my love for God. And it's not her fault. No, but my love for the Lord went down. I had to get that straightened out. You can love the Lord or you can love money. You can love the Lord or you can love a career. You can love the Lord or you can love family more. I didn't say don't love your family. Just read what Jesus said. See, the triangle can't be complete unless the love, we know the love came this way. We know it's supposed to go this way. And if you in your life and your heart know, well, I, I mean, I'm here, aren't I? Well, yeah, but if you're mad about it, do you really love the Lord? That's the point. Is it love? Do you love the Lord? When Jesus finalized his conversation with Peter after his resurrection, he didn't say, Peter, now that we've cleared the air on this thing, your failure, your denial of me three times. Jesus did not say, now will you work as hard for me as you did fishing? Will you work as hard for me as you did that career? Will you be as strong and tough for me as you seem to be about career and other things? A fighter like you? Will you be that tough for me? Jesus didn't say that. He said to Peter three times, you know it. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? When I read that, I don't read Peter's name there. I read my name there. His record is settled. Mine isn't. His record is settled. Yours isn't. Take it personal, ladies and gentlemen. When you read that in the Gospel of John, chapter 21, then you let God speak to you. Put your name there. He's asking you, do you love him? Because there can be no boldness in the day of judgment till that's in place.
See, he said, to love the Lord is the first and great commandment. Then he said, the second is likened to it. That finishes the triangle. It's on this level. Love your neighbor or love your brother as yourself. That's on this triangle. Triangle's complete. I've received the love of God, and I love God. Do you love on this level? Well, some people. Or it could be like the coffee mug my wife has. Now, this is a joke, but my wife has a coffee mug. I bought it for her because she's not a morning person. And the poor woman doesn't like coffee. I've sent her to counseling. I've done everything I know. She still doesn't. But anyway, uh, she's got this coffee mug. And, and help me out with this, Sandra. It says, I do not like morning people. I'm a morning people. I do not like morning people. Or people. Or coffee. I do not like morning people. I do not like coffee. What does it say? Oh, yeah. I do not like morning people. Mornings or people. See, she's got issues, I'm telling you. But anyway, this way. Anybody you don't love? I don't know everybody. Is there a race of people you don't love? Is there anybody in the church family you don't love? Ask me how, answer this question. Answer, how could, how could I have a good experience at the judgment seat of Christ with cheerful courage if I despise Somebody he loves. Because he does. If I detest a race of people that he gave his son to die for and would save everyone that believes, and I despise them. And I, I, I'm, I'm very serious about this. Uh, I, I look at myself and my attitude towards a lot of the political leadership. And it's so frustrating. It's, it's, it can be maddening. And I have to ask God, help me not to have a hate attitude. Help me to love because you love. Because these politicians, some of them, that I am most at odds with, if they would bow the knee and call upon Jesus to save them, the love of God could be shed abroad in their heart the same as mine. And my sin was sending me to hell like their sin and unbelief will send them to hell. We're on the same ground. I'm not saying I do that perfectly, but I'm working at it. You know why? Because I can't have boldness and confidence in the day of judgment unless this triangle is made perfect. All pieces in place. I've received the love of God. I love God, and I love on this level. If all the pieces are in place, what could be so bad about the time of judgment. What is there to fear? If the pieces are in place, what is there to fear? There can be even cheerful courage in the time of judgment. Lord, you know who's in this room. If I knew this congregation a lot better than I do, I still wouldn't be able to know what you know about the men and women assembled in this place.
I pray that you would help us to see that this is what you've ordered. This kind of life is what you've commanded. Your commandments are not grievous. We read right here in our passage. And we know we love you and we love the children of God. That's what it says. And we know we love you when we do what you say. And keep your commandments. And your commandments are not grievous. They are not meant to load and burden people down. Not to make us heavy laden. But to make us have boldness in the day of judgment. If somebody's here that in fact has never been saved, may they exercise the humility of heart to just come and say, Pastor, can somebody help me? I need to know that Jesus is my Savior. If there are believers in this room that know their love is misplaced, their affection is not upon the Lord, that's why John wrote in another place here in this book, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Set your affection, the apostle Paul said, on things above, not on things on the earth. Maybe there are believers in this room that say, my affection, my devotion, my love is misplaced. There are things that are more important to me than loving the Lord. Would you have your way in this invitation? Would you do reviving in the hearts of people where there is need for revival? Would you accomplish your will for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together, shall we? We're going to have a time of invitation. We'll ask the piano to play. The Spirit of God's dealt with your heart, and you know, I, I, should, I should turn aside and talk to the Lord. This, this matter of being ready to meet Jesus, it's serious. It's real. He's coming. That's not just a good snappy song. That's the truth. He is coming. And we will give an account. So then every one of us must give an account of himself to God. Nobody can answer for me. And nobody can answer for you. You need to come this morning. You need some reviving again. You need to get that triangle in place. All the pieces. As the piano plays, have you received God's love this morning? Do you know for sure you're saved? Two, do you love God the way you ought to love God? Three, do you love your brother, other people, the way God would have you to love them? So important.
bring our invitation